All right, everyone, good evening. Thanks for, for being here again this week. I noticed uh, last time I taught, so two sessions ago, that when we finished, the clock was set ahead uh, 10 minutes. And so it said we finished at 7, but it was actually 6.50. So one of you must have came in early to set it ahead <laughs> to make sure we'd either be on time or get out of here early. So it has been set kind of right now. So whoever did that, caught you. <laughs> Good. Well, let's go ahead and begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so before we begin this evening, uh, a couple of housekeeping items. Um, for those of you who are still following the calendar from the original bulletin insert back in October, keep in mind that uh, there was one change, and that change is next week. So next week we will not have class on November 20th. Um, so that was in the original um, schedule given uh, at Mass here a few weeks ago. Yeah, a few weeks ago now. So no class next week. Um, both Father Wolf and I are going to be going out to Montana on uh, Sunday, Monday for Bishop Vetter's ordination. So we're going to. We're not able to be here to teach, so thanks for your flexibility on that. So our next Joyfully Catholic session will be um, a month from now, December 11th, on Sacred Scripture. If you know anyone who's not here this evening who might be following the, uh, the old schedule, so to speak, make sure that they're aware that no class again until December 11th. And if you want an updated schedule, they're on the panel here on your way out, so be sure to grab one of those. First off, as I mentioned, our, our reading, 40 Reasons I'm a Catholic by Peter Kreeft, uh, as I mentioned before, this is kind of a supplementary reading to our class, and so I'm not spending a lot of time um, going through it. It's, like I mentioned, meant to be a supplement to um, our discussion and instruction here. Uh, but I would like to entertain any questions or comments for those of you who were able to do this week's readings. If there's anything that was confusing, feel free to ask. So any questions on this week's reading, anything that was not, not clear or confusing. Okay. So continue to, to pile through this uh, for next time, chapters 13 through 16. If we keep doing four chapters a week, we'll be finished by, by Easter. So the schedule says that our talk this evening is on the Mass. I know that up to this point, a lot of the uh, class, whether it was last week with Father Wolf or um, a couple weeks ago with me, has been very kind of, you could say, philosophical or, or theological. We're going to transition a little bit this evening, and it's going to be a bit more practical and, and tangible for you. Um, obviously, when we start talking about Mass, there's a lot we could say. We could approach it from a very theological standpoint regarding the Eucharist and the different uh, theological teachings behind our belief in Catholics, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. We'll save that more, the more theological, when we talk about the sacraments. Um, but tonight, we're going to do kind of a, a walk through the Mass. So for some, this is going to be a review. Uh, for some, it might be something completely new. And the reason we wanted to talk about the Mass and kind of walk through it early on in our sessions here is really simple. For a lot here, the Mass might be something that is very, very new or unique or confusing. I might have mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, how 
it's been described before that somebody who hasn't grown up going to Mass and then all of a sudden walks into a Catholic church on a Sunday morning is somebody like who walks into a family's home on Thanksgiving and they have really strange traditions, right? And you're like, what is going on here? What are these people doing? That's kind of like Mass for somebody outside walking in. And so I think it's important to kind of explain the context of the Mass, kind of the outline, the logic behind it, and then we have a few documents we'll try to go through this evening. You'll see one of them, 101 questions about the Mass. We're not going to cover all 101, don't worry. I highlighted some of the key ones, but we'll eventually get to that. The first thing I wanted to say about about Mass, and we'll explain why it's called the Mass and what's unique about that as to why Catholics call this thing we do on Sunday Mass as opposed to worship, or praise or service, why we use the word Mass. There's four basic parts of the Mass. Introductory rites, liturgy of the Word, liturgy of the Eucharist, and concluding rite. And so no matter where you're at in the world, if you go to a Catholic Mass in Japan, or Italy, or Poland, or Bismarck, no matter what language it's in, you can pretty much know what's going on as soon as you walk in based on the, the structure of the Mass. And I'll explain kind of the history of some of these things as to why we do what we do. But just so we have some overall context, then we'll kind of uh, hone down from, from there. The introductory rites, that's basically everything from the very beginning, the opening procession, all the way to the sign of the cross, the greeting, um, the, the penitential act where we say, Lord have mercy, uh, the gloria, and the opening prayer. That would be the introductory rites of the Mass. And then after the opening prayer, we then transition to really these two, Liturgy of the Word and Liturgy of the Eucharist, are in many ways kind of the two main components of the Mass. Liturgy of the Word would include, of course, first reading, psalm, second reading, gospel, homily, creed, and then the prayers of the faithful. That would be the Liturgy of the Word, right, where we're listening to the Word of God, the priest is hopefully trying to break it open, and so it's applicable to our lives. That's the liturgy of the word. And then, after that, we transition into the liturgy of the Eucharist. Liturgy of the Eucharist then would be the, the presentation of the gifts, right, where the gifts are brought forward, the bread and wine, the preparation of the altar, the, the preface, the Eucharistic prayer, the, our Father, Lamb of God, so on and so forth. So that'd be the liturgy of the Eucharist, and then the concluding rite would be the closing prayer, the final blessing, the dismissal, and the, the recessional. So those are the main four kind of components uh, of the liturgy. The reason I wanted to start with that is all of you, when you walked in, should have received a green sheet. So let me explain why you have this two-sided green sheet. If you could go to the side where it says St. Justin Martyr at the very top, St. Justin Martyr, the first apology, written 155 AD. So this is obviously written by a saint his name is justin and he's a martyr right he died for the faith saint justin martyr the title of this document that saint justin martyr wrote uh, nearly two thousand years ago is entitled the first apology the word apology means defense so if you're an apologist for the faith you're somebody who defends the faith right we talk about apologetics somebody who tries to defend the faith so the first apology would be his first defense the reason St. Justin Martyr felt he needed to write a defense is because he was a convert to the faith. Now, he wasn't a convert from Judaism like a lot of early Christians were. 
he was a convert convert. He was from Greece, and so he, he had no context of Old Testament and, and Jewish faith. And so he's a, he's a real, real convert. And so he felt a need to defend his decision to convert to the Christian faith. And it said it was written in 155 AD. That's really significant. We know that Jesus died around the year 33 AD. We know that St. John, the apostle, was the very last apostle to die. Scripture scholars say he died around the year 90 to 100. So that means that St. Justin Martyr was writing this about 55 years after the death of last apostle. There was a key saint who was a link from St. John the Apostle to St. Justin Martyr. His name was St. Polycarp. St. Polycarp knew St. John the Apostle. And St. Polycarp's disciple was St. Justin Martyr. We're talking, everyone, one generation away from the apostles is when this was written. All right? That's really key in terms of context. You'll see right below that chapter 66 of the Eucharist. I'm not going to go through this tonight. Uh, We might go back to it when we talk about the Eucharist in more of a uh, theological sense. But right there is where we get our our teaching on real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. It comes from St. Justin Martyr. Actually, it comes from the Apostles. But we have verification that that was the early, early Catholic um, Christian belief about the Eucharist. Um, This is what the saints believed. This is what the disciples of the Apostles believed. And they have a little bit of credibility since they're apostles. But if you flip it to the backside, chapter 67, it says weekly worship of the Christians. I'm going to just read through this and make a few points as we go. So this is him uh, describing what weekly worship would have looked like in the year 155 AD. And we afterwards continually remind each other of these things. And the wealthy among us help the needy. Right? So that's something that's been going on from the early church, um, assisting those who are in need. And we always keep together. And for all things wherewith we are supplied, we bless the Maker of all through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Ghost. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place. So they come together in one place. Which day? Sunday whether they live out of town or in town. I mean, this is getting pretty specific, describing early Christian practice. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. The readings, the memoirs of the apostles, that's the New Testament, the letters of Paul, the letters of Peter, the letters of James, the letters of John, right? Or the writings of the prophets from the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, so on and so forth. So the readings are read as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs. What does that sound like? The homily. The actual Greek word here would have been presbyter. I'm ordained to the presbyterate, right? A priest partakes in the presbyterate. It's it's the same, same word. Right in Greek. So the priest verbally instructs the homily. And he exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Right? So an exhortation is offered in that homily to imitate what's being read in Scripture. Then we all rise together and pray. And as we before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought. 
if you're a gift bearer here at St. Mary's, that's been going on for longer than you've been alive. Bread, water, wine are brought forward. And the president, the presbyter, the priest, in like manner offers prayers and thanksgiving according to his ability, and the people assent, saying, Amen. Right? The great Amen. Now, St. Justin intentionally left out a key part here. He left out pretty much the entire liturgy of the Eucharist, where the words of institution are given. That was very intentional. The early church was very protective of the words of institution and that rite of the Mass so that they couldn't be somehow used in an irreverent way. So they actually didn't put into writing um, what the words of institution are so that people who were trying to imitate or mock or somehow um, denigrate would, would do so. So that was, that was intentional. Okay, so I'll keep going. There's a distribution to each and a participation of that over which thanks has been given. And to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. Then the deacons brought communion to those who were not able to be there. So if you ever see somebody come up on a Sunday with a little gold pyx and we give the Eucharist to them, they're bringing the Eucharist to the homebound. That's been going on since the early church, right? And they who are well-to-do and willing give what each thinks fit, while well, they mention money twice, some things haven't changed. <laughs> and what is collected is deposited with the president, who secures the orphans and widows, and those who through sickness or any cause are in want, and those who are in bonds, and the strangers sojourning among us, and a word takes care of all those who need. So the early church uh, specifically took care of widows and orphans and the poor. But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because it is the first day in which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world and Jesus Christ our Savior on the same day rose from the dead. So the reason of Sunday is obviously because resurrection took place on the Sunday. For he was crucified on the day before, that of Saturn, Saturday, and the day after that of Saturn, which was the day of the sun, having appeared to the apostles and disciples, he taught them these things which we have submitted to you also for your consideration. So, powerful stuff. Right, powerful stuff. Hopefully putting what we do as Catholics on Sundays into some context, right? So I just wanted to kind of uh, mention that here as we begin. Any, any questions on that? When did they change from the Jewish Saturday to Sunday? It's um, very likely that the earliest disciples of Jesus um, after the resurrection, um, they're... Their Sabbath, their day of rest, their day of worship became Sunday, right? So the three major religions, uh, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, all three of them have a holy day, right? So for Islams, it's Friday, that's their holy day. For Jews, it's Saturday, and for Christians, it's Sunday. We know, obviously, that all the earliest Christians would have been Jews, and they, their holy day would have been Saturday. Um, it's been said before that one of the proofs of the resurrection is the fact that an entire culture changes Holy Day from Saturday to Sunday. The fact that Christians were able to change something that was ancient, namely a day of worship on Saturday, and now they're worshiping on a Sunday, uh, really the only thing that could have caused that 
is something as powerful as the resurrection. One of the many proofs people try to offer as to the historicity of the resurrection. Great. Good. Any other questions regarding uh, St. Justin Martyr? Good. So at this time, um, if you want to take out this uh, little booklet, 101 Questions About the Catholic Mass, I want to go about this a bit differently than just kind of presenting to you. And and like I said, I went through um, some of the main questions that I wanted to offer. Uh, The only difference in in this little thing here, if you really wanted to uh, get uh, nitpicky, is that this was published in 2007. 2007. For us English speakers, something big happened in 2011, namely a new translation of the Mass. And so you're going to notice a few small differences here and there because this was published before we started saying things like, and with your spirit, when we used to say, and also with you, right? So we can talk about why that changed too as we go. But I just want to make that a little comment here before we dive in. So if you want to go to uh, the very first section where it says gathering, it'd be question number four. So what is the greatest act of the church? The greatest act of the church is the liturgy. The liturgy is made of the mass, the sacraments, and the divine office. The divine office is what we priests pray five times a day to make that promise of ordination. The mass from Misa, which means oblation, uh, initiation, assembly, and dismissal. And the Eucharist, which is the Greek word for Thanksgiving, right? So the Eucharist is a Thanksgiving meal. Or the heart and center of the liturgy. The Holy Eucharist is the font of life that cleanses and nourishes us with God's grace to live, not for ourselves, but for God, in communion of love with God and our neighbor. Right? So, the greatest act that we do as people of, of, of Catholic Christian faith is the liturgy. Right? So that's why the Mass is central. That's why it's so important that we come and participate in, in those things. But it's also worth noting, everyone, that the Eucharist, right, means to give thanks. This whole question of why do I go to Mass, right? We, we look at Mass numbers today, and we see, right, 10% of millennials going to Mass um, as opposed to the previous generation, 25%, the previous generation, 50%. So we see Mass attendance just, you know, plummeting around the world. And we can say, well, maybe we should, like, make it more engaging and, you know, have brighter lights and more fog and, you know, more bells and whistles, so to speak. My first comment on that is this. The Mass is the Mass, right? It's not really ours to change. It's not mine to change. It's actually the Church's. And the the liturgy belongs to the Church, and so any change in the liturgy is, is something that the Church does. But also, the liturgy is something that's been given to us um, it's not something that we somehow invented. It's something that was given to the apostles, namely by Jesus at the Last Supper, right? Um, that was the first Mass, the Last Supper. And so really to, to somehow think that we have the authority to just walk in and change the liturgy, we don't really have the authority to do that. We haven't been given that authority by Jesus to do that. And so we simply do what Jesus and the apostles did. We are one holy Catholic apostolic church. We come from the apostles and from, from, from nowhere else. But if I were to ask a lot of young people, well, why do you go to Mass? For those of who do go to Mass, why do you go to Mass? More often than not, the question I get is because it makes me feel good, because I get a lot out of it, right? If you were to ask me, Father Johnson, why did he become a priest? 
If I were then to tell you, well, I hope I, I, I was kind of hoping I'd get a lot out of it. I hope you'd be really disappointed in that answer. Right? If, if I were to ask, for those of you who are married, why did you marry Joe? Why did you marry Susie? Well, I thought I'd get a lot out of it. I hope your spouse would be disappointed. I say that because we need to maybe transition our mindset a bit to not be quite so, you know, self-looking and, and looking toward some, something bigger than, than ourselves. We come to Mass primarily, everyone, right? We come to Mass to give thanks. We come to Mass because of the Eucharist. The Eucharist means to give thanks. So if you're looking for a reason to motivate yourself to get more out of Mass or whatever it might be, remember why you come. Remember that you're coming in order to give thanks and praise to Almighty God who died for our sins and His great love and mercy has given us all these things to receive His love and receive His life. So we have to remember why we come. We come to worship. We come to give thanks. We come to praise. Right? My favorite songs we sing at the church are songs where we're literally able to praise God in song. Right? The, the wonderful song here at most ordinations and even some weddings now, Oh God, beyond all praising, we worship you today. That's a wonderful song because it's a song where we're giving thanks and praise to Almighty God. Because that's what we're doing at Mass. Right? That's what we're doing. So, just kind of keep that in mind as we go. Question five, the next one down. Who can benefit from attending and participating in the Mass? Anyone who attends Mass with theological faith and personal devotion can benefit from the Mass. Notice some key words there. In order to benefit from the Mass, we have to have some level of faith. Which is to say what? You can't just show up. Right? For people that say, well, I don't get anything out of Mass, guess what? They're probably right. Right? We've been there before. I've been there before. When you just show up and you kind of are unconscious of what's going on, you have a billion things going on in your life, in your mind, and we don't allow ourselves in faith to receive what God's trying to do, we don't get anything out of it. Right? So for people who say, I don't get anything out of it, they're right. They're, it's, it's true. The prerequisite for God to work, this is true in Scripture, but it's also true in the liturgy, the prerequisite for God to work is the virtue of faith. Right? In order for God to have influence in my life, that predisposition of faith is needed. So, that's why we're going to encourage people to be you know, active at Mass, and we'll talk about what active means and what it necessarily doesn't mean. Theological faith is the grace of believing God, and in all that, that is revealed, God gives us grace to those who ask Him for it. The Holy Eucharist is a mystery of faith. This means that we could not come to know about it in truth, except through God's revelation. This is God revealing Himself, right? And although with faith we can come to know many truths about the Eucharist, it cannot be fully understood by us. Right? We're not going to fully understand any aspect of the faith really till heaven. There's always going to be some level of mystery in what we do in our religious practice. That's just part of it, but uh, just to keep that in mind. 
Number six, why are faith, grace, and participation so important? Max, here we go. There's going to be three key words here that are very important for us to consider. The church calls for the faithful to have full, conscious, and active participation in the Mass. Full, active, and conscious. Right? That's a line that comes from the Second Vatican Council. How many of you, I don't mean to age anyone, how many of you remember the pre-Vatican II Latin Trinity Mass? Number. Okay. I don't. And it's, this is, I want this to be heard rightly. This is no knock on the, the, the Trinity Mass and for those who love it. And it, it, was, it was the Mass for basically since the Council of Trent until 1967 or so. So we're talking 500 years. That's a big, that's one fourth of the church's existence. That's a long time. But Vatican II was encouraging people to be, to be fully conscious and active in what's going on at Mass. Uh, there was a time in the, in the Trinity Mass where oftentimes all participants did was just pray the rosary the whole time, right? Because it was in Latin. A lot of times you didn't know what was going on. The reason they had bells at the consecration was to indicate, oh, by the way, if you haven't been paying attention, Jesus is about to come. So here's the bells to indicate that in kind of a, a bit of a wake-up call, so to speak. So what the liturgy in, in the, the, the new order, the liturgy since Vatican Council has tried to offer is that we may be conscious and active participating. Now, when I say active, right, that doesn't mean I need to sign up to be a Eucharistic minister. Please keep being a Eucharistic minister. Or I need to sign up to be a lector. Please keep being a lector. What active and conscious means is, is a consciousness of the mind and the heart. That I'm trying to be attentive to what's happening. I'm trying to be attentive to what's taking place, right? When we're at our best and we come and we're kind of locked into Mass, it's amazing how well together everything fits, from beginning by acknowledging our sins, the prayers that the priest offers from that big red book, right? They're really beautiful if one allows themselves to like listen to them. That's what we talk about by being active and conscious. I, I said this kind of with a little bit of regret at uh, First Communion Mass here uh, last May when uh, a Christian once asked me, Father, you know, I notice, and I try to do better with this, Father, I've noticed that oftentimes at Mass, your, your head is down, right? We want to see your face. Why is your head down so much? And, and so I'm trying to look out more, right? I'm not sad or anything like that. I'm doing fine, okay? In case my mom calls and asks, I'm doing fine. Um, she'll probably listen to this later. But I, I, I said during my first communion homily is that one of the reasons I oftentimes don't always look out at people's faces during Mass, as wonderful as their faces are, is one of the most challenging things for me as a presider is seeing how many people are completely disengaged in what's happening. And I have a tendency of taking a lot in and like internalizing it and then it causes all kinds of internal things. So I'm just like, ignore it, okay? My job is to stay focused, but, but it's really true. From my point of view, when you're looking out, and I don't care what point of the mass it is, and, and you see people completely disengaged, that is not full conscious and active participation. I'm not faulting them. I'm just saying that there's so much more 
that the mass can offer. If we're bored at mass, it's oftentimes our own fault, right? Of just not being attentive or not being present to, to what's going on. All right, so those are just some initial things uh, to mention. So uh, next page, please, number seven. Where does the mass come from? So I made this uh, reference here a bit ago, but just so we're kind of clear. Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, revealed the Mass, the Last Supper, before he died on the cross to redeem the world from sin and death. He instituted the Mass and the Eucharist to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross, to be continued throughout the ages until the end of time, as he said, do this in remembrance of me. Right? If we had a ton more time, we could walk through all the various parts of the Mass and see how you know the Last Supper was more than likely a Passover meal. Um, there's some debate on it was celebrated on the night of Passover, but more than likely, there's a Jewish Passover meal, right? And there's all kinds of uh, resemblances in the Mass to that. But we know that at the, the first Mass was the Last Supper. And the reason that Jesus instituted the Eucharist, right, was really simple. He wanted his presence to remain with the church even after he was killed and rose and ascended to the Father in heaven, right? So the Mass will continue until Jesus comes again, right? If there's one thing the church will continue to do, it's, it's offer the Mass, right? You can lock up the doors, you can throw priests in jail, but we will keep offering the Mass. All right, so then uh, number eight, uh, this is important. Has the Mass always been the same? The major parts of the Mass have existed from the beginning. While the church's authority, occasionally as the Spirit guides, make revisions to some of the prayers in minor parts of the Mass. The Mass is the center of the church and the Christian life and the greatest part of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. Jesus teaches about the Mass and the Eucharist in chapter 6 of John's Gospel, in the Last Supper Gospel accounts, and in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. From the beginning, the church has always celebrated the Mass and believed in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. The book of Acts speaks of the early church dedicating itself to the, quote, breaking of the bread. That was a buzzed phrase for the Eucharist in Acts of the Apostles, the breaking of the bread, which is historically synonymous with the offering of the sacrifice of the Mass. So we see how it's evolved in, in, in some ways to, to make it a bit more um, accessible, but it's always been done through the, the authority of the church in like really big ways, like ecumenical councils where all the bishops come together in union with the Pope. So it's not like all of a sudden I can just make some changes. I, I, I don't have that authority to do no priest really does. No bishop does. Uh, that's something that the church accepts. Uh, uh, number nine, why don't all the Christian denominations celebrate Mass? The divinely revealed truth of Mass and the Eucharist have remained unchanged throughout human history. Whether all have believed in them or not, from the beginning, all Christians celebrated in common the Mass and believed in the Eucharist. That is, until Martin Luther, who had been a Catholic priest for 15 years, broke with the Catholic Church on Reformation Sunday, 1517. Uh, by the year 1600, there were over 200 Protestant interpretations of Christ's words, this is my body, this is my blood. Even until today, Protestant Christians no longer believe in the real presence of Christ, although some believe in some form of presence and communion, not celebrate the sacrifice of the Mass with the Catholic transubstantiation. So, that word, that last word, if I want to kind of slip into a little bit of theology with, with the Eucharist, really, um, we as Catholics are the only ones that believe in what's called transubstantiation, 
we know that means a change of substance, right? Uh, trans means a pass through um, or a change, and, and uh, substance means the essence of what something is. So we believe, right, in the uh, words of institution uh, recited by the priests over the proper form, which is bread and wine, that a substantial change occurs. It changes in its essence of it being bread to becoming the body of Christ. It being wine to becoming the blood of Christ. Now, one of the best examples I've heard of, of this, just uh, kind of a side note, comes from Bishop Barron, uh, would oftentimes say, and this is a nice example of my own life because it works with my, my family. <laughs> um, my youngest brother is a cop up in Williston. He's been a cop now for two years. Uh, so he's a deputized police officer, right? If he were to walk into a place in Williston and he is on duty and he's wearing his uniform and he says to somebody, you're under arrest. Him saying that changes reality. That person is now under arrest. It actually changes reality. That person was not under arrest. That was the reality. And now the new reality is they're now under arrest. Why? Because he has been given the authority to do so. Translate that into an ordinary priest. Because I've been ordained as a priest, if I were to go to the sacristy right now into the bread cabinet and bring in some bread and say the words of institution given to us by the church, through my ordination, because I've been given the authority from the church to do so, reality changes. That bread becomes the body. Why? Because I've been given the authority. Now, authority, we don't like the word authority, right? Especially as Americans. Um, the word authority just means a, a power. Not, we don't like the word power either. Uh, <laughs> it's a capacity. It's an ability, right? My brother's been given the ability, the capacity to say you're under arrest and change reality. A priest has been given the authority, the capacity, the ability to say, I absolve you. This is my body, all right? So, and that actually changes reality. So when, when, you, when we start to think about the Mass and, and the Eucharist, it's just a bunch of hocus-pocus, right? Just magic stuff. It's not. And we actually have all kinds of examples just in humanity that's similar to what we believe about that. Skip at number 14. Is it true that the more I participate in Mass, the more grace I will receive for myself and for others? The short answer is yes, right? The more we participate in the Mass with faith and devotion, the more grace we receive. We've been there before. I think we can all probably think of experiences in life when we've come to Mass in a certain time of need or something going on in our life, and we leave, and we feel like, wow, God was really active and working during that last hour. That's because you came with a certain level of faith and devotion, right? That's not magic either. That's just how, how things work. Every Mass is a source of countless graces that are so needed today. That's one of the reasons we offer daily Masses. Uh, skip ahead to now, number 15. Why do we have to go to Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation? Sunday is a holy day because Jesus made it holy by the resurrection of the dead on Easter Sunday. The Holy Spirit made it holy by descending from heaven on the Apostolic Church on Pentecost Sunday. 
from the beginning, the church Sunday has been designated the Lord's Day. By her authority, the church has made every Sunday a day of obligation, and she has designated a few other days of the year, which are of special liturgical importance as holy days of obligation. Attending Mass on Sundays and holy days is a grave obligation unless there is a serious sin for being unable to attend, which does not include vacation when a Catholic church is accessible. The easy example I, I like to give people is when we go on vacation, we plan all kinds of things, right? We buy flights. We make hotel reservations. We make dinner reservations. We buy twins tickets. We plan everything out. And oh, by the way, maybe just maybe I'll fit mass in if it's convenient. Those are the moments where really a lot's on display in our own lives. Like it's easy here. It's every Sunday. It's just part of our routine. But when we're out of our routine, that's when the chips are down. Right. I can so, say something about please. that. We used to go camping, and there's 1-800 mass times. And where you're going, it'll tell you where the churches are and what time mass is. And that's always been the highlight, where we would be going to different churches and the different, it just. It yeah, it's kind of fun. And it's kind of fun. You get, yeah. it's a change of pace. You don't have to listen to my voice the whole time. You get to see somebody <laughs> else and see what other people do. And I'm preaching the choir a little bit on that one here, more than likely, but just know that uh, if we can get to Mass, we do have that obligation. Now, obviously, when we're sick, when there's a snowstorm, and it's just not safe or, you know, logical for us to go, those are, you know, those exceptions. Okay, we're going to skip ahead a little bit to uh, number 20. Wow, we're really flying. <laughs> Got 80 left. <laughs> I kind of like this one. Uh, why do we stand, sit, and kneel at Mass? We engage the performers of posture at Mass to correspond with the various parts of the Mass. For example, you sit during the readings and homilies of your instructionals, but stand during the proclamation of the Gospel since it's about the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. We also stand during the prayer parts, whether the ones said by the priests alone or by the congregation as a group. We kneel in adoration during the consecration the bread and wine are changed in the body of Lord Christ before and after receiving Christ in Holy Communion. So, what's, what's really neat about the Mass is how intentional everything is. There's extreme, I mean, uh, to reference Bishop Barron again, Father Barron, who some of you might listen to some of the stuff or read it, he talks about the genius of Catholicism. There's incredible like, intention out. Everything has a reason. Uh, that's why it's, when I used to teach high school, um, one of the most enjoyable things I would teach about was, was the Mass because it, there's just so many different questions people have and there's so many teachable moments and it, uh, everything is so intentional. So I just wanted to highlight that. I go to the bottom there, number 23. Is has the present tabernacle important? And if so, where is it usually located and how do we acknowledge its presence? Yes, the tabernacle is of greatest importance because it is the house of the Eucharist who is Christ, the tabernacle must be present either in the sanctuary of the church or in an attached chapel, usually in the raised area directed by the altar or to one side of the altar. So in many ways, our tabernacle here couldn't be in any better location, right? It's in a great location. Uh, when you walk in, you know what's at the center of this church, right? The tabernacle's right there. The tabernacle is located in a place that is, quote, truly noble, prominent, readily visible, beautifully decorated, and suitable for prayer. Because Christ is truly present in the tabernacle, it is customary to genuflect and reverence toward the tabernacle and adoration of the sacrament. 
when entering and leaving the church or the chapel, and to direct our prayers toward Christ and the tabernacle in general. Um, just one note on, on genuflecting. When I was first ordained and I was at the cathedral, they, uh, it was before that before the tabernacle was replaced up in the sanctuary. It was in the back chapel um, where they now have adoration. One of the reasons the uh, Richter at the time did so was was part of what's going on here, making it into truly noble, prominent, readily visible uh, place. And on a really practical level, people didn't know what to do when they come from out of town or visiting. They didn't know what to genuflect. Maybe genuflecting backwards. Really, you shouldn't genuflect towards the sanctuary because the tabernacle wasn't there. You should just bow and then your pew. Well, good luck telling that to a visitor because you said 99% of all other tabernacles being right in the sanctuary. It was really a practical thing for the sake of consistency. It's wonderful that the tabernacle is located where it is here. Let's not throw us off that away from the center of the church. I know a lot of churches did it. I'm not really sure, um, you know, historically or liturgically, what brought that about. Um, I think my. I suspect it's kind of a, it was kind of a generational era thing that that was really common in the late '80s and in certain um, liturgical movements. Um, it wouldn't really be based on what the Vatican Council would have said, you know, that quote I just showed you. So a liturgist, right? A liturgist is somebody who makes decisions on the liturgy. Uh, I don't know if I've shared this quote with you before, but I always like telling it. Do you know the difference between a liturgist? And a terrorist. <laughs> you can negotiate with a terrorist. <laughs> if you find a professional liturgist, good luck <laughs> negotiating with them. Uh, so going ahead to number 30, um, what's the importance of the precept mass? The mass and the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist depends in a special way on the sacrament of holy orders which is of the ordained deacon, priest, and bishop. For Mass to be celebrated, a priest or bishop is needed, since only they can consecrate the elements of bread and wine. Deacons and other ministers have important roles as well, though their presence is not necessary for the celebration of Mass. The priest is the principal minister at Mass. The Eucharistic prayer is the high point of the entire Mass, and the most important role of the priest at Mass is to say their prayers of consecration. Right? So uh, a priest is needed to celebrate the Mass because we've been given that authority through our ordination, given that uh, capability to do so. Um, and then a bishop is just a priest, right? Like a bishop is a priest with a really big job. But uh, only, a, only a man who's a priest can become a bishop. Number 31, what are the special clause a priest wears at Mass to celebrate for his liturgical vestments? His vestments include a chasuble, which is an outer garment worn at Mass. He also wears the stole. That's what goes around her neck. It's a longer, uh, thin liturgical vestment worn around the neck. These garments are colored to match the liturgical color of the season of peace or feast of the church. The altar cloth often matches the liturgical color of the priest's vestments. The colors are usually as follows. Green ordinary time, white for uh, Easter, Christmas, purple for Lenten Advent. Red for Pentecost, Palm Sunday to Friday, and on the Feast of Apostles and Martyrs. So the, the best explanation I've heard as to why priests, uh, you know, why we wear vestments at, at Mass, especially, you know, why don't I just wear, you know, blue jeans and flannel shirt, or even just my, my uh, collar, is that uh, sacramental theology would say the 
The priest in the sacraments is acting in the person of Christ the head. Right? And so when the priest says, this is my body, it's not the body of Father Jared Johnson or Father Jared Wolf. The priest is saying, this is my body. The principal agent, the principal actor, if you will, of the Mass is Christ. The priest is standing in the person of Christ the head. Right? And so what vestments do is they, in a sense, cover up our, our, you know, the fact that here I am as a human person, but it's, it's Christ, right? It, it's Christ acting through the ordination the priest has received. So that's why we were vestments. Um, is the easiest way to try to explain that. For those, I asked earlier about pre-Vatican II. Um, so do you remember how the priest used to face uh, not face evil, but face backwards. I'm not, once again, advocating that. Um, the reason that occurred was actually kind of a theological <coughs> point, that the priest stands as the person of Christ the head. So if I'm standing here, and I'm saying the Mass this way, it wasn't just so I have to not look at your faces and get all sad about you not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> The reason we're doing so is we're standing in the place of Christ, and this whole liturgy is being directed to a certain person, namely the first person of the Holy Trinity, God the Father. So the Mass is being offered to God the Father. The priest is standing in the person of Christ ahead, representing the church, who is the body of Christ, head and body. The church is the body, the priest stands in the person of Christ ahead, offering this Mass to God the Father. So... That's just a, a side note on, on, on that. Have you ever noticed, if you really pay attention to like the, the prayers of the Mass, especially the opening prayer and the Eucharistic prayer, notice for a second to whom all the prayers are being directed. They're being directed to God the Father. It's always being prayed to God the Father through Christ. Right? We end all through Christ our Lord. Even the Eucharistic prayer, right? You are indeed holy, O Lord, the fountain of all holiness. This prayer is being directed to God the Father. And part of the reason that they used to sound like that is it was a visible way of, of saying this whole prayer, Mass, is being directed to God the Father. All right. Skipping down now to number 34. Uh, what is the purpose and role of the deacon at Mass? I want to make sure we highlight this. Uh, we as a parent are very blessed to have four, four very um, capable uh, generous, faithful deacons. Uh, not every parish has us, so we are very, very blessed to have them. Uh, they're, they're, they're some of the best. Um, but just a bit of context on their life. Deacons are ordained men who may be single or married who serve the priest in ministry. They are often present at Masses in parishes. They assist the priest in uh, specific service during the Mass, which may include leading various prayers, proclaiming the Gospel, preaching the homily, leading the general intercessions, and assisting during the consecration and distribution of Holy Communion, right? Uh, deacons also have the authority to uh, ability to baptize, uh, to witness marriages, to present at funerals. Uh, they can present at a funeral, but obviously then it wouldn't be a funeral mass. But they can. There's a there's a option about having a funeral without a mass, so deacons can do that. So anyway, um, just a little context on, on their their purpose and role. Go ahead. Everyone, all the way to number 46. We're going to skip a whole bunch. I'm going to simply read the first sentence here and then explain more. 
The introductory rites come to a conclusion with the opening prayer or collect. Now, it looks like the word collect is pronounced collect. That, that word started being used back in 2011 when the translation of Mass changed. And the word collect is used because of what's occurring at that moment in the liturgy. So, uh, after the Gloria on Sundays or after the penitential rite, uh, a weekday Mass, when the priest says, let us pray, and then we pray that opening prayer or the collect, we're actually supposed to pause. And we're, what we're meant to do, both the priest and the people, is to, in a sense, collect all of our different prayers and intentions in what we're offering at that Mass. Um, so the priest, if he's not trying to get Mass done in 21 minutes at a daily Mass, uh, would pause longer, would pause longer um, to kind of collect what we're now offering before we say that prayer. So that's why it's called the collect. So we collect, but we call it a collect. So anyway, go ahead to number 48. We'll get a little bit into the liturgy of the word. What biblical readings are said at Mass? Sunday Mass includes two readings. The first exerted from the Old Testament, except during Easter. And the second usually from a New Testament book or letter. During Easter, we read from the Acts of the Apostles for the first reading, since it's a wonderful time to read about the early church after the resurrection and the power that then bore on their lives and spread the gospel throughout the world. Uh, and the gospel, which daily mass usually has one reading, and the gospel. The responsorial psalm is sad or sung between the readings. All these readings show the continuity of the work of salvation from the Old Testament to the writing of the apostles, highlighted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The responsorial psalm, with its chanting and singing of the psalms, date back to the Jewish liturgy before the time of Christ. Right? Keep in mind, the psalms are from the Old Testament, Right? Jesus would have been very, very versed in the Old Testament. Uh, the Psalms were really at the heart of what Jews prayed. So Jesus would have prayed the Psalms very, very regularly. It's amazing to think about that. Um, Jesus would have prayed these prayers and, and, and meditated upon these words from Scripture. Go ahead to number 51. A little visual aid here. What are the main books used at Mass? The book placed on the altar at Mass, uh, as Mass begins, is the book of the Gospels. That's what the deacon carries, right? It just contains the Gospel for that Sunday and all Sundays. And it's used for the proclamation of the Gospel. The book at the Ambo, um, that's the official term for the podium, the Ambo, is the lectionary and is used for the readings. This is the lectionary for weekday Masses, so it's all the readings. Um, the weekday Masses are on a two-year cycle, which means uh, the reading we would have had at daily Mass this morning uh, will come up again in two years, which means I can recycle my homily from day again in two years. Right? <laughs> Actually, the first reading is on a two-year cycle. The Gospel is on a one-year cycle. So that Gospel, uh, for example, we came this morning, is heard every single Wednesday for the 32nd ordinary time, year after year after year. So, this is the lectionary for weekday Mass. This is the lectionary for Sunday Mass. Sunday Mass readings, as many of us know, are on a three-year cycle. Year A, Year B, Year C. Year A, the Gospel of Matthew is read. Year B, the Gospel of Mark. Year C, the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, so we're currently finishing up Year C. That's why we've been hearing the Gospel of Luke. Um, when we switch to a new liturgical year here, 
uh, first Sunday of Advent. We'll then go back to year A, and the Gospel of Matthew will we'll go through um, for that year. Uh, the Gospel of John doesn't have its own year. The Gospel of John is traditionally read during the Easter season. And then also uh, John 6, which is the Bread of Life discourse, kind of giving the scriptural evidence of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, comes up, I think, every summer uh, for like six weeks. Or maybe it's just summers during year two. So there, that's, those are lectures. Um, this book here is called the Roman Missal. Um, some people say that Bible, that the altar service period, this is not a Bible, okay? Um, it's, it's, a, it's called the Roman Missal. It contains all the prayers of Mass, right? It contains the opening prayer, uh, the closing prayer, the Eucharistic prayers. Um, there's four different Eucharistic prayers that we can use. Most of the time here, I just use Eucharistic prayer two. Number one is a really long one that's nicely used on special occasions where we name all the saints that are really hard to pronounce. Um, so anyway, this is called the, the Roman Missal. Uh, there's a funny story of, of a priest. He, uh, I'm going to use this one too. After the Gloria, he said, let us pray. And the server was coming. Uh, the server was quite a ways away. Um, let us pray. He, he said the one time, he paused. He said again, let us pray. Let us pray for the big red book. Let's go to number 61. How is the Mass, and specifically the consecration, related to the death of Jesus on the cross? The Mass is a remarkable representation. Notice the hyphen there so we don't say representation. It's a representation of Christ's sacrifice of the cross at Calvary. Christ is really present, offering himself in the person of the priest during the consecration no less truly than he offered himself at the Last Supper and on Calvary for our salvation 2,000 years ago. Jesus now communicates those graces to us and to the whole human race through the Mass. This is where the virtue of faith is really needed to understand what I just read. Right? So, we believe the principal agent, the principal one acting at Mass is not the guy wearing green. The principal agent at Mass is the Holy Trinity, is God. All right? So if God is the principal in acting in the liturgy, God, we know, is outside of time and space, which means the liturgy is not just some service. The liturgy is actually, um, in, some, in, in many ways, taking part of the heavenly liturgy that takes place in heaven, the worship of Almighty God. Um, and so the liturgy, as, as I've often said, there is more going on than meets the eye. There is something remarkable taking place on the liturgy. At the liturgy at the that, and, and I know for our very secular culture that you need scientific proof for all these things. It's hard to understand those things. But we're basing this on revelation, meaning God's revelation to us. But the, the Mass is, in a sense kind of like outside of time and space. That's why we're able to say that at the Mass, what we're doing is we are representing the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary um, in an unbloody manner. So that means that everyone, 
the graces that were made available to the world through the death of Jesus are made available to us at Mass. Right? Um, I think one of the saints said, like, if we really understood or see what's going on at Mass, it would, like, instantly kill us. <laughs> um, because of how, how powerful it would be. If a saint hasn't said that, um, did Aquinas say that? Dang it. Okay, thanks. If Aquinas didn't say that, someday if my cause is ever open for canonization, you can credit it to me, okay? <laughs> Just kidding. Alright, so like I said, I know that takes a little bit of uh, hard to understand, but that's what we're saying is a representation of Christ's sacrifice. Uh, now number 62, kind of a follow-up question. Does Christ die over again at every Mass? Christ died once for all for our sins, and his death merited all the graces that our sinful, sinful world needs to be redeemed. The Mass is not a new claim of another crucifixion, but the miracle of making his crucifixion present on the altar and the communicating of the graces of the cross to us within the Mass itself. Similar to what I just mentioned. Alright, we're going to wrap up here. Go to number 80, because this is really practical, and I get a lot of questions on this sometimes. How often may I receive the Eucharist? Currently, the church teaches that I must attend and participate in Mass once a week on Sundays or the Saturday vigil and on other holy days of obligation. I should receive the Eucharist when in the state of grace and having proper disposition each time I have my Mass, but I must at least receive the Eucharist once a year. It is highly recommended to attend Mass and receive the Eucharist daily. I may receive the Eucharist twice in one day when the second time is at a full Mass that I attend and participate in. So, the short answer of all that, let me try to explain, is uh, a Catholic can receive the Eucharist twice a day, right? As long as the second time you receive is a Mass and not like a communion service. Twice a day you can receive the Eucharist. So if you go to 7 a.m. Mass and then you come to a funeral later that day, you can receive the Eucharist both times, right? But then if you come to a wedding, uh, you probably should because the church teaches that you should receive it twice. Um, the reason that the church has these teachings, you know, you might, we can kind of have the logic sometimes of, okay, Eucharist good, more I receive good things, better. Why not just receive the Eucharist all the time? You can make that argument, um, but the reason the church has these various teachings is to protect certain abuses of the sacrament. Um, so let's say somebody really struggled with, with scrupulosity, where um, we think, if I don't receive the Eucharist five times a day, it's a sin for me, right? So let's, that might be a reality in some people's lives. Um, they might struggle with something like that. In order to help them out, the church puts certain restrictions to assist people with, with certain struggles like that, right? So that abuses of the sacrament are occurring. Number 88, and then I'll wrap her up. What is the proper way to receive the host? When receiving Holy Eucharist, as a minister says, the body of Christ, we respond, Amen, which means, I believe. We may receive the Eucharist on the tongue or in the hand. When receiving the hand, one should be cupped over the other. Right? So, the church has actually given the authority to determine the regular way of receiving the Eucharist to um, each country. So, in the U.S., um, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops has been given the authority in our country to say, here's how we receive communion. There's two ways the Conference of Bishops say, either one is on the hand, or number two is on the tongue, right, with a slight bow before you receive both. There's really nothing that, that says um, uh, that a normative way of receiving is, is on one's knees. I know that was an early practice with 
communion rails and, and those types of things. But that's really not one of the ways um, the church provides as a norm, normative way of receiving. So really the two ways one should receive are on the tongue or in the hand. Would it be permissible for a, another Christian to receive communion? That's a good question and actually was that what I was going to end with because of, of that question. <clears throat> so this is obviously a very uh, contentious point at times as to um, why is it that if I go to a Protestant church, all are welcome, and then if Protestants or, or uh, other non-Catholic Christians come to the Catholic church, we don't permit them to receive. The way I like to answer this is very simple. Um, our our practice of only um, asking those who are Catholic to receive is actually about respecting the conscience of our non-Catholic brothers and sisters who are joining us for Mass. We're actually respecting their conscience. Here's what I mean. We know that we as Catholics believe something very, very unique and very, very substantial about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. You won't find that anywhere else in the same specific way we believe, right? Um, in terms of what I said, transubstantiation, that it's actually a change of substance. You won't find that anywhere else except in the Greek Orthodox Church. Really, there's no one else who believes what we believe about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So, if the word amen means I believe, or so be it, and somebody who's not Catholic comes forward to receive the Eucharist, and the priest or deacon or Eucharistic minister says, the body of Christ, and they're now saying, I believe, we're now forcing them to, in a sense, violate their own conscience and their own belief, because really they don't believe that. Now, if they do, then I got news for you. You should be a Catholic. Because your church doesn't believe that. If you believe it's the real presence of Christ, Right? If you believe that personally, your personal belief is not really in line with what your denomination believes. So what we're doing is we're respecting the conscience and the faith tradition of our brothers and sisters in Christ who attend. So that's how I typically try to answer that. Now, good luck explaining that at a funeral. I, I, I won't. What about receiving communion at like a Lutheran church? So once... The, I think it's a similar thing, only vice versa, that really one shouldn't, one, one shouldn't do it. Now, is it, is it a grave sin? I'm not going to go that far to say it's, it's like a grave sin, but really I would want to know what, what's the reason for doing it. More than likely the reason for doing it is like family harmony uh, and to keep peace and, and, and all those things. So. That's something that one's conscience has to kind of decide. I would advise not to do so, just simply because there's such a difference in, in belief and in creed. What we're trying to do is um, respect people's conscience so that if they don't believe what the church, if they're not willing to believe what the church teaches about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, at the moment of consecration, when the priest himself, when the priest says, this is my body, holds up that, as soon as he says the word of institution that the church has given us, Catholic belief would be that's the moment of consecration, right? 
And so, once again, if, if one isn't willing to profess Eucharistic faith as top of the church, then they really, when they're saying, I believe or amen, they're really violating their own conscience. My personal feeling when I'm in a Protestant church is that if I do receive communion, I'm saying there's no difference. If I go up and receive communion in a Protestant church, I'm, I'm saying it's the same as what it is in the Catholic church, and it's not. Yeah. So that's yeah. And it can, it can cause, I mean, those things can cause some scandal and kind of some confusion. And so that's why my advice would be in line with what you kind of just alluded to. So, good. We could go on all night with these things. So, our next class, like I mentioned, will be uh, on Scripture. We're going to talk about Scripture December 11th. So we'll see you on the 11th.